Well, good morning, Epiphany, afternoon. Good afternoon. Y'all all right? Good. Y'all are a little quiet this morning. Ask y'all to talk back just a little bit to me. Uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verse 25, don't turn there, says, Do not neglect to meet, as is the habit of some, uh, but encourage one another. I don't know about you guys, but Sundays are extremely important for me. They are a huge part of my spiritual walk. They're a huge part of my spiritual development, huge part of my spiritual maturity. And I don't know if it's a part of your spiritual formation, uh, but, but I pray that not just Sunday mornings, but beyond Sunday, but Sundays, I pray that this will be a moment that we get to lock arms with our brothers and sisters and corporately worship Jesus. I hope it's important to you. Uh, because it is important to the body that we get together. Uh, welcome to all of our first-time visitors, anybody that's here. I, I got to say hi to some of you, not all of you, but welcome. We are glad that you were here. You could have chosen so many other places to be, but thank you for coming to hang out with us today. All right, we got a lot of work to do in a short amount of time to do it in, so if you can grab your Bibles, run into the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 21. 2 Samuel 21. I see Candace here. Her, she, uh, somebody gave her a ring. Just saying. Just saying. I want to publicly say congratulations to her. You know, it, it's, I always have mixed, mixed feelings when our young ladies get engaged. I'm overjoyed. I'm excited. I'm happy. But I also know if the, if the young man doesn't go to our church, I know we're losing him at some point. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for her. And so congratulations to you. I didn't get a chance to say that. So y'all make sure y'all say congratulations on her way out, all right? All right, 2 Samuel 21. Uh, let me be honest and confess that I have um, I've been eagerly anticipating getting into this word, getting into this passage with you, honestly, since Monday. It was around Monday morning that the Lord, I was reading this for devotion, and the Lord kind of pressed it in my, my heart, and I couldn't let it go. I couldn't shake it. Uh, and I text Ty and I solicited her prayers and I think it's because of the topic. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, breaking free from generational dysfunction. And, and you know, the, the topic, uh, one thing I love about the Word of God is it always, always, always is applicable no matter what area of life you are in. And many of you have walked in this room with a bunch of different issues, and the Word of God is able to address each one of those. But today, we'll be dealing with generational dysfunction based out of Second uh, Samuel 21. Let's just jump right in. Look at verse one with me. It says this. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Watch the detail. Year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul, underline this, and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Verse 3, and David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? How shall I make, look at this word, an atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver, or gold between us and Saul's house or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say I shall do for you? They said to the king, here's what they want. 
the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all of the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. Watch what the king says. The king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth. That should be a, 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 a name that you guys are familiar with. We have talked about Mephibosheth here before. Verse 7, but the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, Jonathan, son, uh, son of Jonathan, because of the oath or the covenant of the Lord that was made between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Jump down to verse 14, the B part. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land, meaning he lifted the famine. I want to preach this morning or this afternoon from the topic entitled Breaking Generational Dysfunction. Let us look to the Lord. Uh, Father, this morning, I echo the words of Jesus Christ found in John chapter 5, that you search the scriptures because in them you think you find life, but these are the very scriptures that testify or bear, bear witness about me. So, Lord, I pray that even from this Old Testament passage, we would get a glimpse of Jesus Christ. Father, many people in this room have walked in today with all types of habits that were passed down to them. And some of us have walked in today still dealing with the consequence of sin that we may have not committed, but a previous generation has committed. Father, would you help us to identify it today? But ultimately, we pray that you would help us to break free from any type of generational dysfunction. It is in Christ's name and Christ's name alone we come before you. Let everybody say amen. amen. August 2nd, 2002, at 9.48 p.m., I get a phone call from my father. And I remember the details of the phone call. This was no small talk. This was the, like he had a message. He had a purpose to why he was calling me. The reason I can remember the details so vividly is because it was the night before my wedding. I was on my way out, about to hang out with some of the guys, some of the groomsmen that were in the wedding. Uh, but my father calls me, and it seems like it's an emergency. And it was an emergency for him. He says, son, it wasn't even a long call, about two minutes. He says, son, I need to talk to you for a minute. Uh, there are some things that you need to know before you get married. And he said, I, I see something on you that I've struggled with all of my life. He said, I I've struggled with procrastination all of my life. And I see it on you, raising you. I realize that you don't only have the same type of procrastination struggle, it's worse on you. And now many of you in this room might be thinking like, you know, procrastination isn't that big of a deal, but it is a big deal when you try to complete papers for school, when you're trying to pay bills. Uh, my father made it clear that it is an issue and it will affect your marriage. When I, when I tell you procrastination, I've put some things off to do later that I should have did at the moment. I've put them off and caused more stress to myself than I really should have. Anybody else in this room can be honest that procrastination is your, my father should have give, given you a phone call as well. Literally, after he got done talking to me, he hung up the phone. It was the weirdest conversation, but he had a purpose to what he was explaining to me. And that's Listen, I see a dysfunction that I've struggled with, and it's now passed down to you. And maybe your issue in this room isn't procrastination. But I'm willing to bet that there are some type of habits that you saw in your parents or the people that raised you or your grandparents that has filtered down to your generation. And even if it's not habits, I'm willing to bet that some of you in this room are still dealing with the consequence of sin that was committed by a previous generation. Nah, pastor, you, you 
have quoted to me Galatians 3, 13. Cursed is he that hung from a tree. I am free from any generational curse. You cannot say that to me this morning. And I would agree with you. Notice I didn't label this sermon breaking free from generational curses because I genuinely believe that if you've trusted in Jesus, you cannot be cursed. How in the world do you believe in a savior that has redeemed you from the curse of the law, have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, and you have a curse? We can't have a curse. But I'll go so far as to say there are some sins. Sin and the consequence of sin has a unique way to travel between generations. Yes, you can be impacted about, about sin that has happened previously. In fact, let me put a little Bible here, Numbers chapter 14. Verse 18 says this, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving the iniquities and the transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty. Listen to this, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on to the children, to the third and fourth generation. Okay, let me put another verse here for you. Leviticus chapter 26, verse number 39. And those of you who are left shall rot away in your enemy's land because of their iniquity. And also because of the iniquities of their fathers, they shall rot away like them. It is 100% true that a believer, a professing believer in Jesus Christ cannot be cursed with a generational curse. But it is 100% true that some of the habits that you have have been passed down from the previous generation. Are you staying with me here? It is absolutely true that you still can deal with the consequence of sin that has happened in a previous generation. In fact, that is exactly what we see in our text this morning. Now, here's the question you should be asking. How in the world am I able to identify generational dysfunction? How do I identify what's generational and what's my own personal dysfunction? Because oftentimes, we'll often think that everything that has gone wrong in our life is a generational curse. Nah, some stuff is you. Can we be honest? Here's how you identify it. Look back at the text with me, because the first thing that David is going to show us is that not everything in your life is a generational curse. Not everything in your life is a generational sin. Not everything in your life is generational dysfunction. Look at verse one. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years. Look at this year after year. When I read this earlier, I, I was struck with the fact that there's a famine in all of Israel. They're not able to grow crops for the last three years. Here's my question. Why in the world doesn't David go to God year one? Why didn't David go to God year two? Why does it take year three for David finally to figure out something isn't right? Well, when I was reading some of the commentaries, many commentaries came to a consensus that David did not go year one and year two because he did not jump to conclusion that everything that he was dealing with, the famine, was a generational dysfunction or a generational sin. And that is what we do. We automatically jump to conclusions. My mama never got married. My aunts ain't married. Therefore, I ain't ever going to get married. No, it might not be that. We're the only ones that will get fired from a job and say the devil is a liar. This is a generational curse. Nah. You should have showed up at work on time. Like maybe you shouldn't have been using company time to play solitaire and be on Facebook. Maybe you should have completed that project on the deadline that was set before you. Everything is not a generational curse. And what we get to see in our text 
is we get to see David grabbing us by the lapels and saying, everything ain't generational. Some stuff is actually you. But, but what we see in the text here is that David wants to figure out. Year three, he's like, okay, something's wrong. I don't know what it is. Verse one, he doesn't know what it is, but he does something that I think is the initial step into identifying what's a generational dysfunction. Look at what he does in verse one. Now, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. Here's the first thing he does. And David sought the face of the Lord. If you want to figure out if what you're dealing with is passed down, you must seek the face of the Lord. He did not first attempt to call all the farmers together and figure out what is the severity of the land. He did not do that. He didn't put on his own farmer's gear and decide to go out and fix the issue himself. He does not try to seek counsel from unworthy places. He doesn't look for land outside of Israel that they can grow crops. He first seeks the Lord. And if you want to identify what your issues are, the things that you're dealing with that you think is some type of a stronghold, the first thing you must do is pray. Because what we'll do is, many of us in this room is, we'll say, I pray, I pray. But if you add up the amount of time you've prayed this week, I bet you it's less than 10 minutes. And most of it was over grace. Most of it was over food. But what, what does it look like to identify our issues by going to God, the one who has created us? Your friends can't help you figure this out. Ancestry.com cannot help you figure this out. What you need most is to seek the face of God. So the Bible says that David was in a famine for three years, all of Israel in a famine for three years, and he knew something was wrong the third year. And the first thing he does is he goes to God and his relationship was so tight with God that God automatically speaks back to him. Look at verse one. It says, and David sought the face of the Lord and the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. Because he put the Gibeonites to death. Wait a minute. So we are in a famine, not because of my own dysfunction, not because of my own issues, but I'm in a famine because of another king. Like, don't miss this. Saul is not king anymore over Israel. David is the ruling king right now. In fact, I'll go deeper. Saul ain't even alive anymore. But yet a new king has rose to the ranks of king of Israel, and he's now dealing with the dysfunction of a previous generation. Okay, let me, let me help you. Some of you in this room, you're not dealing with the consequences of your own sin. You might be dealing with the consequence of a sin from a previous generation. And so what he does here is he goes to God. God says, yeah, it's not your issues. This isn't because of Bathsheba. I already dealt with you on that one. The reason that you're in this sin right now, this consequence, is because of your predecessor, Saul. What did Saul do? The verse says it. The Bible says there's blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put to the Gibeonites to death. Just a little history here. 400 years prior, the leaders of Israel, not Saul, but the leaders of Israel and the leaders of the Gibeonites made some type of peace treaty. And in this peace treaty, they said, we will not destroy your nation. But yet Saul, in his, in, in his moment of weakness, decided that he was going to try to wipe out an entire nation for their land. That is why they're under this famine right now. Here's why. Because he broke a covenant that he made with another nation. And the Bible tells us that he made it this covenant underneath 
of the Lord's sight. Now, here's what happens when we approach the topic of generational dysfunction. Most of us in this room are thinking about the dysfunction that was passed down to you. But can, can I promise you that some of you, you're one decision away from causing a new link of generational dysfunction. Because we always think it was passed down, it was passed down. What about your own dysfunction that you're passing down? My prayer, my deepest prayer is, Lord, shield my boys from my bad decisions. Shield my boys from my generational dysfunction. Block them from what was passed down to me. And some of you, that needs to be your prayer. Because you're so concerned about what's passed down to you Even when I mention the topic, you're like, oh, yeah, because I know I'm dealing with something. What about what your kids are going to deal with because of your decisions? So in our text here, David is dealing with another king's issue. At least two or three times a week, my family and I, before the kids go to school, we, we do a small family devotional. And we try to get into the word. We try to talk a little bit. We pray. We do it at least two or three times a week. And Uh, When they're leaving, when we're done, we prayed and they're on their way out the door. My wife says the exact same thing to them every time. It's almost comical because before she can get it out, they actually say it back to her. And the one thing that she says to them every single time without fail is the decisions you make today will affect your life tomorrow. And that is very true. But I want to go a step further in the text. The decisions you make today don't not only affect your life tomorrow, but affects your kid's life tomorrow and your grandkid's life next week. And it just goes on and on. What you are consumed in right now can impact somebody else. Because we often think I sin in a vacuum and no one else is impacted by my sin. Not only are the people that surround you impacted, but people that aren't even born yet will be impacted by the decisions that you decide to make. And so David here realizes, God says that you sought my face. Now I'm going to tell you your issue. The issue that I have with Israel isn't even you. The issue that I have is because there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house. He decided that he was going to take out all of the Gibeonites, despite the fact that he made a covenant. I want to keep saying it's a covenant because in verse seven, that's going to become really clear to us. Let's keep going in the text. Because when I read this, I said, why in the world would he do that? Like there was peace in Israel. There was no famine in Israel during the reign of Saul. Why in the world would he try to annihilate an entire nation? The text is going to tell us why. Look at verse number two. So the king called the Gibeonites. By the way, that's funny. It's it's almost like like he had an iPhone. He just picked up the phone and called the king of the Gibeonites. So, So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down. Look at this in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. The reason why Saul decided that he was going to take out the Gibeonites was not just that I want their land, but I had misguided patriotism. That's what you see in the text. He had zeal for Judah and he had zeal for Israel. And one thing I've learned about people being misguided by patriotism is it will cause you to do some crazy stuff. Misguided patriotism will cause kids, thousands of kids at the border to be taken from their parents. Misguided patriotism. Misguided patriotism will cause one out of four evangelicals to vote for a man despite the fact that he's a womanizer, despite the fact that he has racial tendencies, despite the fact that he has moral issues. 
despite all that, we'll say, but he doesn't believe in abortion. And what we see is misguided patriotism. And what we need to repent of is our misguided patriotism. What we believe to be a Christian means to be more patriotic. That, like this isn't a God-fearing nation. I, I don't want you to get this twisted. Israel was a God-fearing nation despite the fact that they had issues. But what we see here is the, the king of Judah and the king of Israel decided he was going to make a decision based on misguided patriotism. Be careful of that. But what I see here and what we need to do as the church, we need to own the previous sins that the church has committed through misguided patriotism. Well, how can I, why am I saying that? Because David hasn't committed the sin, but he owns it. David 100% does not say that was Lord. What, what do you mean? That was Saul. Put that on him. Put that on his family. No, he says, I'm going to own it. What do we have to do? How can we repent? Look at what he says to the Gibeonites. How can we repent? of things that we didn't even commit, but our, our previous generation. And the answer comes back to him. Look at verse number three. He's going to seek this out. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make, look at this word, an atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord. How interesting is this? In order for the famine to be lifted, a ungodly nation has to bless God's people. This is almost a reversal of the Abrahamic covenant, because in the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, verse three, God says to his people, Israel, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. But here, it, this generational dysfunction goes so deep that God flips it. And he says, in order for Israel to be blessed, another nation that is a godless nation has to bless you. It's the only way that it will be lifted, which means some of you, this is going to sound crazy, but it's true. Some of you need to repent of mommy and daddy's sin, not necessarily your own. I know that sounds crazy, but some of you, you know things that your parents have done wrong. Your guardians have done wrong. Your aunts and uncles have done wrong. But you sit back and you say, that's not my issue. David owns it. And he says, no, it is my issue. And Breaking generational dysfunction means humiliation has to come into play because you need to repent of things that you didn't even do. So David here, he decides that he's going to repent. But I, I, would, I would say that I think the Gibeonites needed a lawyer. I do. They needed a lawyer because they could have got much more out of this deal than what they got. They could have got money. They could have probably got land. They could have probably got the lives of, the, of Israel. They don't do that. Look at what the scripture says. Pick me up in verse number four. Verse number four, it says this, the Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver and gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said to them, this is what the king says, what do you say I shall do for you? Verse five, they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all of the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, watch what David says, I will give them. I know what you're thinking right now. Many of you are thinking like, this is crazy. They didn't ask for money, but Saul is willing to give seven of Saul's family members in order to satisfy this debt. Why in the world, this is what you're thinking, why in the world would he take innocent people 
and give them to be hung at, before the Lord. Why would he do that? I know you're asking that because that's what I asked. But then I realized, are they really innocent? And the reason I say, are they really innocent is because if you remember back in verse one, it says there is blood guilt on Saul. Watch this and his household, which means he probably did not act alone in the annihilation of another nation. Some of his family members probably partook in breaking the covenant. And so and even if they were innocent, let's just let's play that role. Even if they were innocent, many of you sitting in this room that have trusted in Jesus, you have trust. You are spared from the wrath of God because a innocent man decided to die on your behalf. Even if they were innocent. Now, you know, one of the questions I often get as a pastor, I often get this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? And my my, you know, my response always is that only happened one time. Because underneath the question is the assumption that we're good people. But when you realize you are a sinner and deserving of death, when you realize that you're met with goodness and you're met with kindness, that ain't nothing but grace. And so the idea that bad things happen to good people, it only happened one time on the cross of Jesus Christ because he's the only one that was good. But yet he goes to a cross and dies for you. Here's what's happening in the text. The only way, the sure way to break any generational dysfunction is through bloodshed. That's the sure way. Earlier I said no believer can ever be generationally, have a generational curse. But if you haven't trusted in Jesus, there is a generational curse that hangs over your head. It's called the curse of sin pronounced through Adam. And so if you haven't trusted in Jesus, I'm just going to be honest with you. Generational curses do are passed down all the way back to Adam. But what I love about the text is it's pointing us towards Jesus because it's showing the way to satisfy a broken covenant is by a new covenant through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. And if you're in this room and you haven't trusted Jesus, I want to plead with you to trust Jesus. Why? Because Ephesians chapter one, verse seven says this in him, we have redemption. Here's how through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the richness of his grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, you are all once far off, but have been brought near. Here's how, by the blood of his, by the blood of the cross. So any of you in this room, if you're thinking about how do I break free from this generational dysfunction, there's one sure way to do it, and that is by bloodshed. Because what what David says here is, I'm going to give these seven men, because why seven? It's the other question. I don't know if you ask these questions when you read the scriptures. Why seven? Because seven is the number of completion, showing that this is now this covenant that was broken has been satisfied through the bloodshed of these seven men. But but here's what I can promise you. You don't have to trust in the bloodshed of seven men. You trust in the bloodshed of one, Jesus Christ. So what we have here is a broken covenant. And, And through this broken covenant, many are impacted. Let me show the gospel Through the brokenness of Adam, many are impacted. But through the bloodshed of these seven men, many will be restored. Here's the gospel. Through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ, many will be restored. Here's a scripture for you, Romans chapter 5, verse 15. For if any man died by the trespasses of one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace 
and gifts that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. You're sitting here in this room wrath-free because of the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. And Israel will now be lifted of a broken covenant of the consequences of sin because of bloodshed. Now, why? Why are they in this mess? The covenant has been broken. Verse 7 shows us another important detail of breaking free of generational dysfunction. Look at verse 7 with me. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath or covenant of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. This is important because it's funny. The reason that they're in this mess is because of a broken covenant. And here we have a new king that has the ability and is confronted with an opportunity to follow in the same footsteps as his predecessor and break a covenant, but he doesn't. You do know that, that David made a covenant with Jonathan. The Bible says that he loved Jonathan and he made a covenant that he would take care of his offspring. Well, Mephibosheth is a offspring of Jonathan. And David says, in a moment that I could give Mephibosheth over to the Gibeonites, I won't do it. And you know why? Because I made a covenant with him. Where Saul broke the covenant, David upholds the covenant. And that's, that's a very important aspect of breaking generational dysfunction. You must walk in obedience where your previous generation failed to. Because what we do is we follow in the same footsteps as our mama and our daddy. Know that your mother and father were not perfect. And so the generational dysfunction you saw, you follow in the same footsteps. But then you're saying, Lord, break free from this. Help me to break free. You cannot break free if you're walking in the same footsteps that they were walking in. And so what we see here is Saul broke a covenant. David, in verse 7, has the ability to break the covenant, but he doesn't. He upholds it. And then it's going to end by telling us in verse 14, the B part. And after that, God responded to the plea of the land, meaning he restored the land. He restored the crops. The famine was then removed in verse number 14. How did God remove this generational consequence? Four things. Please write these down. Here's the four things he did. David sought the Lord. That's number one. So for you to break free of the generational dysfunction, seek the Lord. Second thing he does, he reasoned and repented of Saul's sins, not his own. Third, he submitted under a blood atonement. Trust Jesus. Fourth and final, he walked in obedience where a former generation did not. When I announce this topic of generational dysfunction and breaking free from it, some of you can automatically identify the areas that you know are passed down to you. Some of you can automatically point to the situations that you are dealing with because of a previous generation. But then there are some of you in here that aren't able to identify it as easy. Hey, here's the homework. I never give homework on a Sunday. Here's homework for you. Take your journal out this week and write down a list of dysfunctions that you know you have. Like, don't, like, be honest. And if you can't figure out any dysfunction, repent because you do have dysfunction and you're lying to yourself. But then ask somebody else, how am I dysfunctional? If you're married, ask your spouse, what dysfunction do I have? And then I want you to write next to that a list of dysfunction that you know your parents had. Don't show them the list. 
But, but identify some of those areas that you know your parents have and see what they pass down to you. And if you can't figure out what they pass down to you, it's probably an indicator of something that you're on track to pass down to another generation. And here's what you need to do. You need to repent of it. You need to repent of sin that you committed, and you also need to repent of sin that you did not commit, but you're dealing with the consequence of it, because that's exactly what David did. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Some of you in here, maybe you have trusted in Jesus, yet you feel like you're repeating the same sins and the same dysfunction, dysfunctional habits as your parents. Mama wasn't perfect. Daddy wasn't perfect. And they've passed down some stuff to you. And maybe that's you in here. You've, you've trusted in Jesus. You've committed your life to Jesus. But you know there's a range of issues that are not dealt with yet. I hope and prayer this morning is that you would deal with them today. Then there's another group of you in here that as I talk about generational curse, You haven't submitted your life to Jesus. And because you haven't submitted your life to Jesus, what we see happening is you're dealing with stuff that you're not able to break free from because the cross is not your goal. Pray that you would repent today. Pray that you would trust Jesus today. Tomorrow is not promise. Today, you need to trust in Jesus. Because as we consider what a generational curse is, some of you are dealing with the curse of Adam. That always leads to death. Father, I pray for everybody in this room. Pray for those that have trusted in you and have believed in you. But we're struggling to identify areas of dysfunction in our life. And the reason we're struggling is because we realize, Lord, that some stuff has become functional dysfunction. Some stuff is, we've been so dysfunctional for so long that it's become normal to us. Help us to identify them. And Father, as we make this list, I'm making the list. As we write down the areas of dysfunction, help us to be honest and seek you as David sought your face. Help us to also be honest with what's been passed down. Many of us are dealing with stuff in our marriage, and we're dealing with stuff in our marriage because we've seen it modeled in a broken household. Even a household that was a Christian household, dysfunction has been passed down. So Father, help us. I also pray for every parent in this room, every parent that has kids. Would you shield our daughters and our sons from our own dysfunction? Let us be honest that we are passing something down. We rejoice over the blessings that we pass down. But we shy away from praying against the things that are, not of, that are not of you. So help us, Lord. And I pray that you would break us. Would you break us as we deal with this generational dysfunction? Break us to be honest. It's in Christ's name we pray and give all glory.